Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Vigilante Book Club. If you're just joining us for the first time, it might be wise to go back to episode one to get caught up with our story. The Vigilante contains violence and sexuality, and we three are a trio of potty mouths, so strap in, you slap twiddles, you flunt moppers, you carn gizzlers, you fadge twaddlers, you plomp hompers, you clange floggers, you mussy trimpets, you grimple sticklers, you fuck twaddles. I'd love to hear your personal definition of mansplaining, and feel free to just talk right over each other. (laughs) Maybe it's the way your voice tinkles. Tinkles? So he's got a he's got a real uh, water water play fetish. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I've wanted to send a shout out thank you to our dear friend Ben Elliott, who is the composer of our theme music, uh, which I'm over the moon of. I love this song. Um, really, uh, really grateful that we have such a great uh, track for uh, to underscore our podcast. So, yeah, shout out to Ben Elliott, one of the better composer and humans I know. Love you, Ben. Ben, you're fine. This episode of the Vigilante Book Club is proudly sponsored by cats. Love them with your eyes and dogs. All anyone fucking talks about. I have entertained with serious consideration for numerous periods of my life going into the world of crime. Well, I support you. I mean, you know. Well, I have you on record now. Whatever makes you happy. I don't even know where you'd start. Would I rob a bank first? That seems like like, a big first thing to do. If you were to go into a life of crime, Drew, where would you start? What's step one? You know what? You, you, you go and s- steal some uh, catalytic converters. Farron, what's, what's your, what would be your first step into a life of crime? I would learn how to unlock a locked car door. Have you ever witnessed a crime, and what did you do? I don't think I have. That's incredible. I'm not sure I have either. In theater school, I witnessed some artistic crimes. <laughs> <laughs> to this day i actually just remembered when we were in theater school uh, i sort of half witnessed a stabbing okay so i lived uh cut back to summer 2002 <laughs> good summer um yep insomnia was just out <laughs> <laughs> farron and i were on the phone i was it was like a sunday afternoon we had a day off from theater school and I lived in a basement apartment, so sort of the windows were at my, like, chest height. Like, they were pretty high. And uh, I just heard, like, yelling and, like, a woman screaming someone's name, like, Johnny, don't! Johnny, no! And uh, I sort of, like, looked out the window. I'm still talking to Farron on the phone. And saw, like, the full pullback of someone's arm with, like, something in their hand and, like, full thrust and sort of people scatter and this woman's voice I still remember hearing like yelling like don't don't and then I was like Farron I think I just went to stabbing I gotta go he was like okay (laughs) and then I hung up and called 
the police and uh there was like a knock on my door later and they took my statement and and um they were like and you're sure it was a woman's voice i was like yeah they're like other people have said that too but there were no women there it was definitely a man mystery i was like oh weird like other people said they heard a woman's voice calling out this person's name whose name i don't remember at this point Uh, i think it was Kayvon. yeah (laughs) and uh oh that's interesting and so then so but that you heard a woman's voice and other people heard a woman's voice and but the police said that there were no women around and no so did she just like she ran is that the idea is that she booked it well by all accounts like there was no woman present that was a man with a very high voice I can sort of understand that. I am regularly called ma'am on the phone. No. Like regularly. I, almost any time, in fact, and I say this with great confidence, I'm not exaggerating, any time I'm speaking to some sort of like uh, customer service over the phone, that type of thing, I, they, they confidently call me ma'am. I've even tried to correct it, and I don't know if they're just not listening to me, but then they continue to call me ma'am as if <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I don't want to laugh, but I, it's kind of funny. It's hilarious. At first, I thought, why does everybody keep calling me man? Because I, I, I thought it was like... Oh, you were hearing man. Yeah. They were like, oh, we'll, we'll help you right away, man. And I was like, that seems really casual considering our relationship. And I was like, oh, no, it's not man. It's ma'am. That's really I'm, good. I, I may not be able to let that go. <laughs> I don't expect you to. <laughs> so... Wow. Okay. So Drew's experience is a a stabbing. Uh, How about you, ma'am? Do you have any stories? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's read a book. Chapter three of The Vigilante. There were four of them. They got on the subway at Fulton, directly entering the car in which Madden and Sarah were the only passengers. Both of them were sampling the books she'd bought, Madden pondering over one of the great Leonardo's most complicated sketches, which the editor's notes didn't do much to uncomplicate. But even as the door closed and the train began moving northward, Madden knew something was wrong. His eyes had hardly lifted from the printed page when the hairs on the back of his neck told him something was dangerously wrong. There were four of them, all black, all young, maybe an average age of 18. One of them wore a wild pink cap, a wide bopper kind of thing. That, more than anything, Madden remembered later. That and the long switchblade the kid with the cap had. Madden both saw and heard it snap open. He put out a protective hand before Sarah's chest. He heard her sharp intake of breath, then heard the book she was reading slip to the floor of the car. He didn't see her face, though. He was occupied with the faces of the four, more especially the face of the one with the knife, the one who spoke. No trouble now, here. All we want is your money, just the cash. No cards, nothing else. Just, that was as far as he got before Madden launched himself off the seat. He was as surprised as the knife man to feel the doubled-up fist of his right hand slam into the other's stomach. How long had it been since he'd actually struck someone? But the question, although asked somewhere to the rear of his brain, couldn't be answered. Not then. Madden's conscious mind was occupied with other things, frantically occupied. 
Not even Sarah's sudden scream behind him made him take his eyes from that flashing knife blade as he drove his left fist into the face of the one who held it. It was only as the force of the blow catapulted the knifeman from before him and sent the black youth crashing to the other side of the car that Madden turned, prepared to deal with the next of the four. I entirely blame Joe Madden now for anything that goes wrong. Yeah, Jesus. Like, like fucking lost it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He He initiated violence. I mean, I'm immediately, this is not, the way I thought his journey into revenge was going yeah, to start. In, because, like, it doesn't feel like there's quite the level of injustice that there tends to be inside of a, inside of something that would make me go like, yeah, get revenge. But this is like, he, he, he was like a, a stick of dynamite ready to go off. It's very true. It, it really does sort of conjure an image that we're seeing a lot right now in social media of like, the white people standing, you know, by rallies and protests with like rifles in their arms and, you know, just raging and ready to be violent, even though the situation doesn't call for it at all. It's just, it, it's unsettling. But they were too prepared, or one of them was. Something heavy and cylindrical blurred through the space above Madden's head, something wielded by the one now closest to him. Reflexively, he put his hands up to protect himself, but in doing so, he left his midsection unprotected. He saw the heavy boot coming, but wasn't able to move, not fast enough. He felt the fire burst in his gut as the boot slammed home. Then he heard Sarah's hysterical shriek. Then, as he pawed the air, trying to grab something by which he could shove himself forward toward where his wife, good Christ, Sarah, the scene was as if frozen in time. The one black who had been standing before her now stood to her left, a knife in his right hand, her purse in the other. The purse was upside down, its contents spilling out, they too seemingly frozen in mid-air. Sarah, her eyes were open wide in terror, her face transfigured into a pale white bloodless color, Madden's focus shifted from her face to her chest, where the material of her coat was sliced horizontally and from which already rivulets of red were forming. Sarah, his single word, had the effect of starting the flow of time again. He saw now that the position of the knife in the black's hand was preparatory for another swing. He saw that swing begin. I am revolted by being the voice that is reading the description of these men as just their color. Uh, absolutely. I'm so uncomfortable with it. And it's now uh, for more individuals. It's a, a dehumanizing tactic. It, yeah, it just dehumanizes individuals. So they are, they are just the problem. Mm -hmm. And they're not, pe they're not people. And, and it all screams of this small, scared, white guy thing. Yes. And exploiting... A societal prejudice to skip any meaningful description of who these individuals are and why they need money and, and why they're doing it in this way uh, to to sort of I don't know prey on the reader <laughs> to it's a short it's a shitty shortcut I, uh, and, and and an absolutely grossly inappropriate one. And then that heavy cylinder, that thick metal pipe, crashed into the side of his ear. 
An explosion of multicolored lights detonated behind his eyes as if the firecrackers of Chinese New Year were lighting up some darkened sky. He fell forward, knowing he had to get his hands in some kind of position to break that fall, but his hands wouldn't move. He simply couldn't control them. He felt the surface of the car floor against his face. Then he heard Sarah scream again. Her other screams had been bad enough, but this one was such a combination of horror and agony as he'd never heard before in his life, a sound which he thought was impossible for one human being to utter and impossible for another human to hear without crossing the border line to the madness which touched the sound itself. The moaning scream remained in his ears. It was a sound which seemed as if it wasn't ever going to stop. He had to help her. He had to help his wife. He somehow managed to get his hands under his shoulders and somehow also managed to raise himself almost to his knees. His eyes at first refused to focus. And then they did. Good God. Her forehead glistened with the blood which covered it. Blood which flowed into her eyes and down her cheeks. Blood which flowed from under the loose, horrible flap of skin which paralleled her hairline. There was a second source of blood. At least a second. Sarah's throat. Scramblingly, Madden tried to push himself forward. Then, amidst the screaming sound, he heard someone laugh. A heavy pressure came suddenly to the base of his skull, and he felt himself falling again. Falling down, down past the level of the train floor, down past the tracks, down into some bottomless pit. The sounds of agony and those of laughter were suddenly nothing more than echoes from some distant place. And then they weren't even that. And the blackness itself enveloped him in its deathly silence. Do either of you do this, this thing um, where you play out... Uh, these sort of not not with the you know strong racial over overtones of what's going on here but just playing out fantasies where how you would react in an extreme situation i used to all the time yeah absolutely yeah like you're somewhat someone corners you and you like keep your cool and you disarm them and you go through in your mind like how you would like fight and win i, I think that's a huge byproduct of the sort of masculine projections we get in our media i i do slip into these fantasies uh of of being able to do these incredible things. Yeah, disarm the guy or save people from something or rescue somebody from something. The the big element that I always find myself, the fantasy that I, the, the strongest element is not always the uh, physical prowess, but is the psychological calm hmm. um, in how I would handle those sorts of situations, which feels like a really great little mini segue to tell the story about when Drew and I had someone pull a knife on us. This episode of the Vigilante Book Club is brought to you by your parents' cell phone, the only ones on earth that just won't fucking work. So Drew, myself, and another uh, man, it was Scott Bellis, his name's Scott. Anyway, so Scott and I and Drew are in Winnipeg, and we're walking late at night from a bar back to the hotel, and uh, where all of us were staying for out-of-town contracts, and... Um, Halfway along the way there, uh, a young guy on a bicycle started sort of riding slowly beside us. And, but we were three of us were engaged in conversation. 
And then we passed through an intersection and got to a darker part of the street. And this guy rolled up and said, hopped off his bike and goes, I heard you guys talking shit back there. And three of us were like, uh, no, um, we, I think you're mistaken. And tried to keep walking and talking. He said, yeah, yeah, no, I heard you guys talking shit about uh, back there. And then he started saying, he said, I remember this because I, I said it a thousand times. He said, um, who wants to make the first move and then pulled a knife out? I immediately get stuck on the the sentence, no first moves. I think that's I all you kept, said for the remainder that's of all this. I said. I was I went, no first moves, man. No first moves. No first and my hands are out like no first moves. I I I I like stalled. I like went into an error mode when once the knife came out and I was and I'm and I'm backing away. And then in my memory, I know Drew will defend it the otherwise, but I think it's just because you're so tall and long. To me, it looked like <laughs> you were already at the other end of the block. Like, I think <laughs> So both both Drew and I kind of pull away from the knife and I'm going, no first moves, man, no first moves, no first moves, man, no first moves. Like I've lost my mind. And then he's asking for money and wallets and he's now right in front of Scott's face. And uh, Scott hasn't moved. Scott's hands are still in his pockets. And he looks at this guy and goes, sorry, what do you want? So dry, so flat that it throws this kid right off. And he, and at this point now he looks around and drew and I are both now, you know, flanking him on either side. Accidentally, he's, like completely yeah, by accident. Yeah, we've got him surrounded. We're, we're not planning this. All of a sudden we're just like, he's in the middle of a triangle. And so it's a terrible position to be in. And I think he caught on and starts leaving. And he's like, uh, you know, fuck you guys. And you better not call the cops now. And, you know, I'm both Drew and I are like, no, 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 don't worry. No one will call the cops. And he's biking away. And then Scott has a little added bonus goes, well, have a good night. <laughs> and then the kid on the bike turns around. He's like, what the fuck was that? And Drew and I are like, nothing, 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 nothing at all. You just take care now. No cops. No first moves. No first moves, sir. No first moves. And, uh, <laughs> and he leaves. And then Scott goes, I said, what did he, what was that? And we're like, he want, he was mugging us. I'll never forget this. Scott looks and goes, I don't get the lingo, <laughs> but his his unwavering calm and his not going into a place of fear threw the guy off. It was it was that he wasn't scared that the guy backed away, in my opinion. And I and I was I was I was in awe of Scott. I was like, you're the that's 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 what I always played out in my head. But when the time came, the knife came out. I was uh, I was a lunatic. <laughs> I don't think you were a lunatic at all. I think that is the natural reaction uh, to being threatened. But I was ashamed. I spent and still do when I tell the story. I tell I tell it for laughs now. But at the time, and still to a certain degree, I associate a degree of shame and embarrassment with that experience because you sort of expected yourself to respond differently. Yeah, I, I think that whole night once I was home, I think I laid in bed, you know, putting it, putting on repeat, you know, replaying the, 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 the scene the way I, I wished I'd behaved, uh, you know, the way that I, I think we're supposed to with that cool, calm psychology and, you know, and hey, man, you don't want to like, you know, any, anything other than no first moves, man, no first moves, no first moves. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, too, because how you remember it, Kayvon, is different than the way that I remember it, which is a fascinating thing about memory. 
in my memory of it, you said it four times, but not as desperately as you recall it. That's that because in in my internal journey, I was spinning at 105. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That the fear and adrenaline that was going on inside. It's, it, it is interesting to hear that on your memory and from your perspective, it wasn't flailing, but it felt, I felt like I was in free fall and I was sure. flailing and I, and I felt, I was in, yeah. And it was like, it was probably one of the only times I was faced with uh, a violent gesture of that kind, uh, that directly. And I remember pretty soon after having this reality check-in of saying, that is not how you were, were going to handle that. Like, cause I, you know, you spend such a majority of your life fantasizing how you'll deal with a situation of that kind. And I went, wow, that is, that is not who I had painted uh, of myself. In that situation. So that's where I don't know where that, that disappointment and shame comes from. Which is ironic because I'm grateful you didn't react like, say, Madden, <laughs> which would have well, created exactly, trouble yeah. for everybody. Like it, 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 it wasn't in itself a heavily traumatic experience comparatively, but I was shook by my own disappointment in who I decided I was going to be in that situation. And so what I did with that then is I lampooned it into a story that I could make make funny and make people laugh and and try to change it. So again, the funny thing you say about memory, you're right. Maybe I wasn't flailing as much as I was, but I turned myself into a flailing figure. And yes, I know you didn't run away, but in my version, you booked it. (laughs) I've not done you a great deal of service in my rendition of that tale over the years. Oh, I know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have have confidence in my decision, so I'm not bothered by it. But I I do know that you tell the story a different way. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I turned it into a a, a stand up bit, but because um, it was funny to me. But it, yeah, but yeah. again, because what I'm acknowledging is you weren't running. It's just that when you move even two steps, it, that's my running. Like that's as far yeah. as I would. Yeah, and I'm not bothered by your telling of that story. But there is like a slight defense in me that goes like, well, okay, yeah, I know. Yeah, like I get comedy as much as anybody. Um, and definitely better than you, Kayvon, but I understand what you're trying to do with your little jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how Joe does. Sarah. Sarah. There was a voice in the blackness now, one he thought he recognized. As the blackness turned into a slightly lighter shade, his mind struggled to identify that voice, but the pain was intolerable. His head seemed blasted into a thousand fragments, but still that same voice continued to echo around inside his skull to make the pain worse. The voice was his own. He recognized that, at the same time the gray behind his eyes lifted just enough so that he could see the dim outlines of a small face before his own. Sarah. But it wasn't Sarah. It was a woman in white. She wore an odd, pointed cap. Rest easy, Mr. Madden, she said. Then she seemed to be talking to somebody else in the room, the strange white room. He's coming around. But not fully so. The voices all sounded as if from a distance. There was still a blur in front of Madden's eyes in addition to other images. One image he thought he recognized as it was shoved up close to him. A silver badge. He focused in on that and held his eyes open. The image sharpened, 
as did that of the face behind the hand which displayed the badge. Can you answer some questions, Mr. Madden? Sarah. Stay lying back there, Mr. Madden. You took a nasty crack on the head. My wife. Please, Mr. Madden, if you can just... Hands restrained him now. More than one pair, even though he could not mentally connect arms and faces to them, he recognized now that he was in a bed or on some sort of table. It was a hospital or emergency ward. It had to be. There was a cabinet with a red cross on the glass, and there was on the wall across the room a chart with letters, the top one a large black E. Mr. Madden, you must. My wife, where is my wife? She, she's across the hall, in the room across the hall. Exactly who was doing the talking now, he couldn't tell. He didn't care. I, I want to talk to... They were cutting... A pair of hands from somewhere gripped his arms tightly. Mr. Madden, please don't excite... But he stopped listening to that voice. It was the other voices, those of the two or three others whose dimming, clearing outlines came to him. They were the ones he was trying to hear. Can't tell him now. Later, when... But he is the woman's husband. His condition... If I were in this man's shoes, you're not, Sergeant. If I were, though, I'd want... I'm not all that sure that I would. My wife! Madden roared. With a burst of strength, he sat straight up, lurching his arms, freeing them from the hands which had held him, jumping free from the table or bed or whatever it was, and slashing through the opening. And toward the door, which suddenly was open, another woman in white stood there, a young woman with long blonde hair. Madden stopped. Sarah? And then he knew it wasn't. But it was too late. The hands from behind him were on him again, and something stung his left arm. He saw the glint of the needle, his eyes turning to plead with a badge, wherever it was. It no longer was in sight, but only one of the people around him was wearing something other than hospital white. And then he stopped seeking because he couldn't remember what it was he had been looking for. Yes. Yes, he did. Sarah. He was looking for Sarah. He was looking for look, looking for look, look, looking, look, look, for Sarah, 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 Sarah. Really beautifully performed. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was, that was, really didn't good. you feel like you were losing consciousness? I did. I was right there. I, I was yeah. Madden. The two syllables whispered in the darkness again and again. Over and over, Madden tried to make sense of them, tried to grip on just one of the syllables to stop the passage of soft sound through the corridors of his mind, but he could not do so. One of the syllables would not hold without the one which followed, and he didn't have the mental strength for two. But what could it mean, this repetitious two-syllable sound? sa ra sa ra Sarah. 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 He was looking for Sarah. Who? Sarah. I didn't add anything. That is how it's written. (laughs) I think you added a lot and it's wonderful. He sat up, his mind still foggy, still swimming within some unseen swirls within the darkness which surrounded him. He was... where? A hospital. Yes, that's where he was. That's where he was now. Earlier, he had been at 
Sarah's sister's <laughs> place. And then Sarah. She's across the hall. Somebody had said that. Somebody had said that his wife was in the room across the hall. Who? It didn't matter. What mattered was that Sarah was in the room across the hall. She was there and she needed him. He couldn't fail her. He was her husband and he loved her. And she, she was the most precious thing in the world. It took a while, a struggling while, but he made it off the bed with his naked feet firmly on the floor. It took a while longer, but eventually he was at the door to the room and turning the knob. Have you ever called your feet naked? I've never thought of my feet as naked. I'm in, I'm in the naked feet, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the hall outside was lighted, and it was silent. It also was completely empty. Carefully, slowly edging himself through the doorway, he slid his feet across the corridor and to the door of the room directly opposite. That knob turned too. As he pushed the door open... The bright light from within pierced his eyes with a stinging pain. Moving blindly inside, he leaned against the door with his back and heard the latch click behind him. It took his sight a few moments to accustom itself to the light, but when it did, it was a small room, smaller than his own. There was only one bed, except it wasn't a bed. It was a kind of table. On that table, there was someone, someone who was completely covered with a sheet from toe to top of head. No. He whispered, No, they only do that when you're dead. No, it couldn't be the right room. It couldn't. She's across the hall. Oh, God. No, please, God. He didn't want to move an inch, didn't want to get any nearer to that table with the body covered by the sheet. But there was nothing else he could do. Nothing. He didn't take a breath until the fingers of his right hand grasped the top end of the sheet. Even then, he didn't breathe. Not until he gently lifted the end and pulled it back. He breathed again. He screamed then. My God! My God! Sarah! He stood, the sheet still in his raised right hand, his eyes focused on a face he recognized but did not recognize. A mutilated face. One which had been so terribly beautiful this very morning, this very evening, but now... Now a face which, because of some brightly shining knife... Mr. Madden! The voice came from behind him. He turned to see the white uniform and the woman's face above it. The woman looked frightened. He didn't want her to be frightened. Please, he said. Please. The light of the room suddenly was fading. He didn't want that. Not now. Please, he said again. Please, don't. Don't go away. Was it Sarah he was pleading with? Was it the nurse? Was it the light? He began to ask himself, to try to sort things out. But the light continued to fail, the whites before his eyes turning into deeper and deeper shades of gray, slipping everything, including himself, into that familiar black nowhere. You will be all right, Mr. Madden. The doctor was a small, bald-headed man in his late fifties a complete physical opposite to the bull-shaped nurse whose face Madden had first seen upon awakening. He knew it was daylight from the sun coming through the curtains, but there had been no good morning from the stolid lady in white, nor was there now from the small-boned, hairless man. In that, they were alike. They also shared the same look about the eyes, an empty, non-communicative look which contrasted to the fact that the doctor was speaking words intended to communicate. 
You've sustained a pretty severe concussion, but x-rays show no further complications as long as you take it easy. The words. He heard them without hearing, without their registering on his brain matter. His hands gripped the sides of the bed as the doctor talked. For how long the man went on, Madden didn't know. But he knew the subject had switched to his wife. It could have been just two or three words or two or three sentences, or it could have been the standard sermon endorsed by the full contingent of hospital chaplains of whatever faith. He felt the numbing take over his mind and his body, felt the complete emptying of everything of substance from within the shell which his body had become. There was nothing within that shell. Nothing. Nothing at all but a terrible moaning cry. Sarah! This episode of the Vigilante Book Club is brought to you by Memory. Because, uh, if, if, the, the, when, 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 when you, uh, uh, no, 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 I've got, I've got, uh, it's, um, oh, shit. The policeman's name was Delancey. He was fat. He wore plain clothes and probably was a sergeant. Madden still was having difficulty sorting things out. He remembered the man said he was on robbery detail, or was it homicide? In any case, he used the words robbery and homicide. <laughs> uh, I think it is becoming apparent that Joe Madden has gotten severe head trauma yeah. and may may not be fully himself ever again. And I think he passed it on to the writer. In any case, he used the words robbery and homicide. He mentioned a precinct number as he flashed his badge, doing both as he offered Madden a ride uptown. Ride uptown, Madden repeated mentally. Sure, the subway, maybe. But he said nothing, just nodded. Once in the unmarked car, Delancey was silent for the first two blocks. Madden got the impression that the man was mentally counting to a hundred, that maybe some sort of rule in the book based on psychological testing or data collected from homicide division experience over the years, said that the survivor should be given a full 100 seconds before getting down to the dull routine of questioning. Or maybe the number was 150. Or 200. You have any uh, relatives in town, Mr. Madden? My wife has a sister in Brooklyn. Has. Madden closed his eyes. It was the wrong tense. He opened them and waited for Delancey to comment on his mistake, but the cop acted as if he hadn't heard it. No, he'd heard it. He'd probably heard this kind of thing before, many times before. If you let me have her name and address, I'll have her contacted. That is, if you'd like me to. No, uh, I'll take care of it, Madden said dully. Then, did you get the bastards? Sir? The ones responsible for... But he couldn't complete his sentence. Well, we're going to need your help for that, Mr. Madden. Uh, tomorrow, maybe, after you've rested. There are some pictures we'd like you to have a look at. You haven't caught? No, sir. Not yet. <laughs> they left the train somewhere before 14th Street. The patrolman on the train. There was a patrolman on the train? Delancey nodded grimly. He was the one who found you, and he broke off seeming to become suddenly occupied with the guiding of the automobile. And my wife, Madden's mind completed the sentence. He now tried to recall her face, her beautiful laughing face. 
but he couldn't. Then he stopped trying, because he knew that if he were successful in recalling that image, he'd scream. He knew he'd get to that state, but let it come when he was better prepared for it, when his subconscious decreed that he was ready. But for now, there was something else his conscious mind was pressing upon him. You haven't caught them? No, Mr. Madden, we have too little to go on. Like I said, the train patrolman... I didn't see any cop, policeman, on that train at all. Delancey shrugged. He didn't mean to, maybe, but he did. He said, I wasn't told his beat. Maybe he got on after... After it happened. Yeah, Madden said. When the train was in safe territory. He no sooner said it than he realized he shouldn't have said it. Look, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean... It's okay, Mr. Madden. Uh, I understand. He understood. Maybe he did. Maybe he understood all too well, having had to hear it too many times. When Madden began, then he stopped, thinking to himself that he didn't want to hear the answer. But he went ahead anyway. When do you think you will get them? Hard to tell. Maybe I'll have a better idea after you go over the photographs I want you to see. Right now, we've got little to go on. Uh, that reminds me. Your wallet. Madden reached into his breast pocket. His wallet wasn't there. Then he saw why. Delancey had reached into his coat pocket and was handing it to him. They left it behind. Your cards and things scattered in the car. We had it all checked out for fingerprints, everything, but we don't figure on much coming from it. Oh, you'll notice they did take time to clean you out of folding money. It wasn't much, Madden said absently. What was he saying? Why were they talking about money? Why now, of all times? They took your wife's purse with them, Delancey was saying. They always do. I guess they figure women have little compartments where they hide bills and such. If she was carrying a checkbook, I'd notify your bank if I were you. Same thing with any charge accounts she might have... Sergeant, Delancey nodded again. Sorry, I shouldn't be saying all this to you now. I can understand what you're going through, and... No, I, I mean, that's all right. I, I appreciate... He stopped. He didn't appreciate anything. Not now. But he knew the man was trying to do his job, and he knew that he was also trying to be helpful. Did you talk to Sarah? Did you ask her? Oh, we tried, Mr. Madden. There wasn't much time, and she didn't want to talk to us. <laughs> she has a... Thro her throat was cut. I don't think it was a, like a... A choice where she was quickly, like, quickly, who did this to you? Quickly, quickly, describe them. Oh, you're not going to say anything? Ugh. <laughs> she was a real rude bitch. Count yourself lucky. <laughs> was that a nice way of saying that she couldn't? That she was too busy screaming with fright and horror? She was worried, sir, Delancey went on. She refused to believe that you were all right. Madden echoed the word, worried. About me. He thought about it. Then, to change his line of thinking, he asked, Are you married? Uh, me? Delancey asked, and a sudden tautness came over the man. Are you asking because you're <laughs> interested, or...? Um, uh, sir, Mr. Madden, could you please take your hand off my leg? I... just... <laughs> just a ride. Uh, no. No, I'm... I'm not married, Mr. Madden. Neither am I, Madden said. Not anymore. They fixed that for... And it was then and there, in an unmarked police car heading north on Manhattan Island, that Joe Madden broke down. The hands he held over his face weren't somehow strong enough. 
They couldn't suppress the sobbing sounds which were coming from his mouth. They couldn't hold back the tears which were drenching his cheeks, for they too were shaking and wouldn't stay in place. Sergeant, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, There's no need to be sorry, Mr. Madden. But, But there is. A man doesn't, he sobbed. Delancey was quiet for a time. Madden's hands blocked any view of the expression on the man's face, but then the policeman broke the silence with a low, rumbling tone. Yes, he does, Mr. Madden. A man cries. When there's reason, there's nothing else he can do. Which brings us to the end of Chapter 3. Um, I also have to uh, highlight that that's 40 pages into the story, and we've just gone through some pretty severe stuff, but the the event of him crying has been presented as the true tragedy and climax mm-hmm. of the story so far. And then that's when it happened. Not her death, not the not the attack, not anything. The the day that he cried, a, a man cried. That was the tragedy. That was when it happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's like to set us up for that. Yeah, that's how low he is. Yeah. If he's if he's a man who cries, oh my god, rock bottom. They broke him. They brought him all the way down to crying. That's the lowest of the low for a man. <laughs> it is. Lower. Lower. He should just yeah. leap out of that car. That man, that man is nothing to live for anymore. I'd kill myself. <laughs> what was that? We t- were held up at knife point and I never cried. <laughs> what that police officer say is like, <laughs> a man cries when he has a reason. I was like, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 was, I was like, are you... <laughs> It was either the dumbest or the most profound thing in the book so far, but it I think it's the dumbest. <laughs> Sorry, men, men don't cry. He's like, yeah, sure they do. Like, when you, if you have a reason, <laughs> fucking cry. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What an immense day and great, great chats. And I can't wait to have our next session of the Vigilante Book Club. Me neither. Sa-ra. Sa-ra. If you want to keep the laughs and chats going, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us with your thoughts on today's episode at vigilantebookclub at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Club Vigilante. Please do rate and subscribe, as that helps us a bunch. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like it, keep your big mouth shut. <laughs>